It's December 21st, 2020, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. My name is Josh Rollerson. What a year it has been between the pandemic, the recession, elections, and really everything else that's happened in these last 12 months. You could be forgiven for overlooking the fact that 2020 also marks, among so many other occasions, the 50th anniversary of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Yeah, we've been tooting our horn about that all year long on the PEC website and on this podcast. We're not going to be doing that on this episode, however. Instead, we're looking ahead at another imminent milestone. That would be the 100th anniversary of one of Pennsylvania's best-known and most-loved state parks. Presque Isle, on the shores of Lake Erie, became a park in 1921, but its story begins many thousands of years earlier, with the movement of glaciers across the North American continent. And that's where David Frew and Jerry Skripsack pick up the tale in their new book, Accidental Paradise, A Natural, Social, and Political History of Presque Isle. From its unusual geological origins through the industrial era and up to its debut as a recreational destination in the 20th century, the book figures Presque as the outcome of an unlikely series of events, accidents of history without which the park and the city of Erie itself might never have existed. Published by the Jefferson Educational Society, it's available now with proceeds benefiting the Tom Ridge Environmental Center at Presque Isle State Park. Its authors are our guests on today's show. David Frew and Jerry Skripsack, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. You're both local boys. You you talk about your personal connection to Presque Isle and what it's meant to you sort of growing up in the area throughout your careers. Let's start there. What made you want to write this book? Well, for, for me, Presque Isle is part of my everyday life. It's a rare day that I'm not there doing something. And I've done uh, projects out there with uh, superintendents. Uh, I w- work with uh, Harry Leslie and his predecessor. Uh, I, I love the place. Uh, we walked the trails. We kept a boat out there at the marina, as did Jerry, for years and years and years. My kids grew up and my grandchildren have sort of grown up out there as well. And Jerry, I know you had a somewhat different perspective growing up. Yeah, a little different, a little different perspective. Uh, I was, I'm heavily involved out there with our fishing club, the Sons of Lake Erie, which I'm president for the last 27 years. We do a lot of programs out there. Uh, we take probably a thousand kids fishing every year, and we have occasion to uh, not only uh, work with uh, the park staff, especially their educators. Uh, we've been very active in, in uh, sponsoring some of the events and some of the activities out there for years. Um, and just, uh, it's kind of unusual this year because we didn't do anything because of, of the COVID, but uh, when this is over, I hope we get back to work. So got a different appreciation of, especially not only of the park, but of the people who work there. I wanted to ask you about your title, uh, Accidental Paradise. Why did you choose this lens for looking at the history of this piece of land? Because uh, it runs throughout the book. What, what, what were sort of some of the happy accidents that brought us Presque Isle State Park that, that, that made it what it is today? Well, I should start out by saying that I'm better at uh, planning and writing than I am at titling stuff. And uh, for all the working titles that I had, my wife jumped in, as she has many times. My wife and I are co-authors of a bunch of books and said, here's, the, here's what the title should be. And everybody that's seen it has loved it. Uh, so we've stuck with that. And uh, to me, it seemed like a, a fortuitous accident that we still have that place and it became a state park. There were so many 
opportunities for it to go away. One of the places that I went to visit when I was doing research here was the Corps of Engineers uh, libraries in uh, upstate New York. And there's a complete description there of how, in their view, when they were asked to come here and, uh, and create a channel into the bay. And one of the things that Erie has that nobody else on the Great Lakes has is a, is a natural harbor with the protection of this strip of land called Presque Isle. Uh, prior to uh, the time that it became a state park, there was a channel uh, through the west end of the park for just, just about 60% of the time, if you count them all up. And the Corps of Engineers argued vehemently that that's where the channel should be, that they were wasting their time trying to develop the east channel. They did not have dredging uh, technology at the time. And it was clear to them that they could clear the channel on the west end and it would be perfect. But the people here fought against that uh, for a variety of reasons. That was the first time we could have lost that place. Uh, and then, of course, there was the steel mill that we tried to get uh, Carnegie to build here and several other events. There were so many times when we could have lost it and we're lucky that we didn't. One of the, I guess, really the seminal accident, the one of the, one of the first happenstances of history that brings us Presque Isle is, is the actual formation of the land itself, which you cover at, you know, at length in the, in the book. Can you give us just a brief, and I don't know, this is a 15,000 year history of this part of Pennsylvania, but in a, maybe you can compress it down to a minute or two. How did this, how did this geological formation occur? Like what were the forces that brought it into being in the first place and what makes it unique? Well, Presque Isle is a sand spit. And there are several sand spits on Lake Erie. Lake Erie is a place that can generate sand spits. And all the sand spit peninsulas at least have their uh, beginnings, uh, their west ends, uh, somewhere either uh, right where Presque Isle starts or across the lake from us uh, where Long Point starts. Long Point is exactly the same as Presque Isle geologically. That's just three times as large. There are sand spits on the other end of the lake as well. There's Pelee. Uh, there is, uh, uh, there are a couple of actual sand spits on the American side. Jump in there, Jerry. Well, as, as far as the sand spits go, it's, it's kind of unusual. It, 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 it uh, I grew up outside of the Prescott Bay and Dave grew up inside the Prescott Bay. My, my point of view of Prescott was from a distance on a lakeside. And I've watched that, that piece of uh, sand spit grow probably a mile in my lifetime. Uh, when I first uh, grew up as a kid watching from where my vantage point was up outside the channel, uh, you, know, you could see pretty well past it. Now today, uh, it's pretty much filled in. So it's a growing piece of uh, moving sand, I guess is the best way to call it. It's a, it's a live organism from a, from a geologic perspective. And uh, going back with the first, first attempts of measures we have of Presque Isle were done by the French when they came here in the 1700s. And we know that it's almost doubled in size since they were here. If you look at just uh, over the years, how, how the, the harbor itself evolved because of Prescott, it's initially the first lighthouse built on Lake Erie was built on the outside of the channel on a bluff overlooking, overlooking the lake. Well, as this channel started growing, uh, they added another one and, and shut down the one on the bluff and added another one out on Prescott because uh, it was growing. And they also had a lot of equipment like a, a fog whistle and things like that, which started off right near the shore, ended up being inland uh, because it was growing around it. 
if we go way back to, you know, before Europeans arrived in this part of the world, what did Presque Isle mean to the First Nations peoples that were here at the time? Uh, how, how was this land being used? Give me that uh, context before we get into the 20th century. The, the uh, uh, tribe uh, that we most associate with uh, Erie, the Erie area, were called the Erie's Indians. And, of course, they're sort of named after the, uh, the lake, uh, Lake Erie. Uh, we understand how they used uh, the, the water. They were afraid of the water. They weren't paddling back and forth across the lake or taking uh, uh, boats offshore to fish. But they would come to the water's edge uh, when the fish were running in the spring and the fall and catch them with various uh, techniques. The uh, Erie's Indians caught fish by poisoning the water. Uh, they would throw poison. They were poisoners. Uh, they had uh, developed the technology of poison. And when the fish were stunned and floated to the surface, they would scoop them up and, and harvest them and dry them. One of the things you got to consider, Josh, is if it wasn't for Presque Isle, uh, City of Erie wouldn't be here, at least at the time that it was founded. Uh, if you look at the history along the Great Lakes, most of the major settlements were made at the mouths of rivers and navigable, navigable waterways. There are no inland navigable waterways in Erie, in Erie County. And if it wasn't for Prescott, I doubt that the city would be here right now. It was, it was a sort of a French exploration accident that caused the French to think that this might be an okay place. They had originally planned uh, to come across Lake Erie and land uh, somewhere offshore of Chautauqua Lake. If you know Chautauqua Lake, they thought they could portage to Chautauqua Lake and then uh, paddle through Chautauqua Lake and get into the Monongahela and then get down to uh, Three Rivers, which was uh, the, everybody's epicenter of discovery. So a couple of the uh, long canoes that were trying to come this way got thrown off by typical uh, currents. They were coming across in a nor'easter, and they ended up uh, paddling into Presque Isle Bay. When they saw the sheltered bay, they thought, wow, this might be better. And after a, a short exploration, they figured out that they could portage from uh, Presque Isle, from the bay, up to the creek that they named French Creek, and that way they could get just almost as directly into the river system. Another accident. <laughs> so, so many of them. Uh Actually, I want to focus in on another one of those accidents that you referenced earlier. Uh, Andrew Carnegie comes to Erie in 1895, and the the town elders roll out the red carpet. Carnegie wants to build a steel mill. That doesn't end up happening. Uh, Could you tell that story and explain why that's such a pivotal moment in the history of the community of of Presque Isle? Well, that's as much of a train story as it is anything else. I'll let Jerry tell that. He's the train guy. In in around 1860, early 1860s, the uh, Philadelphia and Erie Railroad completed a uh, line from here to Philadelphia. And in order to entice them to uh, set up in Erie, uh, city fathers donated or contributed uh, water lots and land all along our waterfront, except for a small area. And Pennsylvania Railroad controlled pretty much all the land. And of course, the last thing Pennsylvania Railroad wanted was some more competition to come in here. As it is, uh, Carnegie wanted to bring his railroad, which he called the Bessemer and Lake Erie Railroad, into Erie. Uh, they couldn't get a uh, uh, track rights, or they couldn't get a, a way to do that, except the only way they could get into town was over the nickel plate tracks, which run a little bit south of, uh, of the bayfront. 
and uh, there was no way that uh, Pennsylvania Railroad would let another uh, let some competition in here because they already had uh, iron ore and coal docks in operation, and that's basically what Carnegie wanted to do was to uh, set up a dock so he could bring in iron ore and export coal. So, uh, uh, so they decided to go to Conneaut instead, where they eventually set up. Just for just for a steel making perspective, the two things that you need for uh, steel making are uh, iron ore. These days, it's taconite and coal. And uh, when Carnegie came here to view the harbor, and he saw the giant piles of iron ore here and coal already here, he started thinking about vertical integration and how he might be able to make as much money moving iron ore and coal as he would, uh, you know, creating a brand new steel mill. So his alternative choice was to expand the steel mills that he had and uh, find a new place to take his railroad, which turned out to be Conneaut. Thank you, Conneaut. <laughs> there but for the grace of God. Yes. Yeah. Up to that point, I guess we should backtrack a little bit. What were the commercial and industrial uses of the aisle before we get to the point where people are talking about a park, uh, 19th, early 20th centuries? How's the land being used then? Well, since it was a sort of a wilderness that nobody seemed to be interested in, nobody knew exactly what to do with it. And it was difficult to get there prior to cars and roads. Uh, there were people out there doing market hunting. Uh, to, to do that, uh, you take a plywood raft filled with dynamite and you push it into the middle of a bunch of ducks. When it blows up, the ducks die, and you harvest the ducks. There was out-of-control lumbering. Uh, they would cut the, cut the lumber and then float it to town, uh, plane it and sell it as boards. Construction was going crazy. And there was trapping out there. So essentially, the place was being devastated um, by uh, uses that shouldn't have been happening. And then somewhere in here, it becomes more of a tourist destination, right? As we get into the 20th century, how does that happen? And how do the impacts change with that economic transition, uh, the environmental impacts? It, I kind, it kind of started when, when the uh, City of Erie Water Bureau or Water Department or Water Authority, whatever you want to call it, I think call it City Water Works, uh, used to take intake water from Prescott Bay uh, and, of course, pump it into town for people to drink. However, what had happened is they were also discharging sewage into the bay and it led to some diseases. So in order to uh, get a fresh water supply, they decided to build a intake pipe out into the lake across Prescott. Well, in order to do that, the state deeded a section of land to the waterworks people. Well, uh, at that time, uh, it was pretty still much of an island and the only way to get there was back and forth by boat. But when it was established, they started establishing uh, settling basins and pump stations and uh, they uh, had some caretakers houses and eventually uh, uh, they uh, set up a you know an area for the beach and people would come back and forth in order to go swimming uh, on the lake side of the uh, bay and they did some and they actually did some swimming in Presque Isle Bay so that's what kind of started it. Uh, there was uh, a lot of cranberries that used to grow out in Presque Isle and uh, they had, uh, it was quite, they'd have a harvest in October and they actually set up uh, rules and regulations that allow so many people at so many times you could go out and harvest cranberries. Cranberries are there, but they're kind of hidden right now. They don't break, there's not a lot of them left. But those are just kind of things that go on. But another thing you gotta realize, it was, it was not just the fishing and uh, the tourism. There was also a Navy base located there from, uh, till, uh, beginning of the uh, where 1812 all the way to uh, 1825 
that you know set up set up uh, uh, some uh, structures, uh, blockhouses, hospitals, thing, all to all to uh, uh, support uh, Perry's fleet at the time. So it had uh, multiple uses. Uh, the commercial fishermen uh, had uh, some of their operations over there. They used it to uh, process the fish that they caught. Uh, in fact, there's an area uh, we mentioned in a book about an area called Stinkhole, which is where the fish processors were set up and they would discard the uh, carcasses and the place kind of had a terrible smell. So they called it Stinkhole. It's still called Stinkhole to until today. So there was a lot of uses before it became the park. I thought they tried to rebrand the, the Stinkhole into something a little bit more uh, appealing. These days, no, we it's, it's, we call it's it romantic. It's romantic. <laughs> you know, why change it? One of the fun ethnic aspects of what the Waterworks was doing out there was they were under tremendous pressure uh, for killing people. And they tried to wash that by calling the disease that was killing people typhoid, and they blamed it on immigrants. But in actual fact, it was cholera. And we had cholera all up and down the lakes, uh, lots of different places. It was an issue during the war. During the war, they called it lake fever. Uh, and to try to recover from the bad reputation that they were suffering, uh, they decided to get into the parks and recreation business. So the water department uh, took it upon itself to set up swimming pools and stuff on the Erie side, and then to create this fabulous beach on the, on the other side where they owned that chunk of Presque Isle. Their first beach out there, and this shocks people, was on the Bay side where there was a bandstand and they had free concerts on weekends. And then when they started to become more and more concerned about people swimming in the bay, uh, they moved the beach over to the lake side. We're coming up on 2021. This is the, the centennial of Presque Isle State Park being established. That's sort of the focal point for all this in, in some ways. What was the impetus back then, 1921, for establishing a park on this site? How did, how did that process get, get going and what was decisive? Well, there, there was a pretty high-end fellow in town. His name was Sobel. Uh, he was a Jewish guy and uh, well-known for solving problems. He was also the president of the Pennsylvania Republican Party. So he imagined himself to have terrific uh, political influence, which he did. And he and his men's group were constantly studying civic problems. After he rescued the hospital and the post office, they put their minds to rescuing Presque Isle. They were worried about the destruction of the park because of lumbering and the loss of the tree roots that they thought might be stabilizing the park. These were not biologists, but they were just using common sense. So Sobel decided that it would be a great place for a national park. And uh, they put together a super sophisticated proposal, and uh, it was rejected for a variety of reasons, mostly because they just opened up a national park in the Great Lakes at Mackinac. Uh, so Sobel decided maybe the second best thing that he could try would be to uh, dust off that proposal and present it to the state. And the state uh, didn't really want it. They were too busy. They were too distracted. There was bad economic times. And they, uh, gave, they made him a deal that they thought he wouldn't be able to follow through. They said, okay, if you can raise this much money, we'll go for this. And of course, by the time uh, they had made him that deal, he'd already raised two-thirds of the money quietly. So he's the unsung hero here, and that's how we became a state park. I did want to ask about Tom Ridge and the Tom Ridge Environmental Center, which benefits from this book. 
You devote a chapter to Governor Ridge. Can you talk about his life in Erie, his connection with the Isle, both as somebody from there and also as a political leader throughout his career and the influence that he's had on, on the land and vice versa? Well, Jerry's more sophisticated politically than me, so I'll let him do that. <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave uh, uh, Tom Ridge was a, a local guy, grew up in town. As, which I actually, actually had affiliation when I was a city policeman and when he was assistant district attorney, you got to know him pretty well. And then he uh, ran for political office, became the congressional representative, and then later on he became the governor. And uh, as during his time as governor is when he started using a lot of his influence. One of the big things that he did was when he was when he was a uh, congressman was to uh, work uh, diligently to try to uh, alleviate some of the erosion problems that Prescott has been plagued with over the years. And I'm sure through his intervention and, and uh, persuasion, uh, they established a, a row of uh, break walls uh, that uh, are supposedly keeping the uh, uh, peninsula stabilized. So uh, Tom had, you know, had a lot of influence in getting the, uh, the Ridge Center built and they decided to name it after him. He's just been a big asset to this community. I thought he should have been president, but that's beside the point. <laughs> I, would, I would agree with that. And I should mention that Tom is a modest guy. Uh, one, one of the most important and greatest jobs he ever had, if you talk to him, was he worked as one of the maintenance crew at Presque Isle. So he understood the struggles out there from the inside out. And uh, as a congressman and as a governor, uh, he helped uh, move a lot, of, uh, a lot of resources our way. I should mention that the, uh, the hardest job anybody had to do was to convince Tom that there should be a Ridge Center and or that they should name it after him. He actually fought against that, although it's, it's good that he lost that fight. Another happy accident. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it occurs to me, and I, I'm going to preface this by apologizing because this is going to be kind of a shaggy, ill-formed question. But uh, what I want to get at, and tell me if there's anything here or not. It seems as though Presque Isle and Erie is almost a, a little microcosm of the economic uses of land in Pennsylvania through its history, all these sort of impactful industrial activities, and, you know, the impacts that result from those. And then we also see this headlong rush into commercial tourism. And Pennsylvania right now, parts of the state are, are at this, what would you say, inflection point kind of you know, Erie's been through this. What can other parts of the state, I guess, learn from Presque Isle, uh, specifically the way influential people in the community and in the state were able to set aside this piece of land and say, yes, commercial uses exists, recreation is important economically as well as for quality of life and so on, and create a model where all of these things can kind of coexist and still sustain the land. And again, I apologize, that is a meandering. <laughs> no, I understand a question and it brings up the push-pull there. We get 4 million people a year uh, going to Presque Isle. Now that's a bit of a, 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 a bad statistic because I'm probably four or 500 of those myself being out, going out there every day. No one really knows how many tourists come from where. Uh, we have a sense of that. I did a study for Visit Erie last year in which we got to the bottom of that. But hands down, uh, people who are coming here and identify, self-identify as tourists say that's the number one reason why they come here year-round. And it's not just swimming. It's also fishing and hiking and uh, bike riding and all the other fun things that happen here. So while we have all those people uh, riding around the peninsula and visiting, we have to think 
how important it is that we're bringing them here and how many peripheral businesses uh, we're sustaining as we do that. But we also have to be cautious about, about not destroying the place with overuse. So uh, we, have, uh, we have small businesses around the periphery of the park and in town saying should be open 24-7. There should be no uh, swimming restrictions like the lifeguards won't let you take a blow-up dinosaur toy out there because you, they know you're going to get in trouble and people complain about that. But at the same time, uh, those resources give us the opportunity. For example, we just cleaned up the bay, which was one of uh, 32 uh, Great Lakes hotspots until a year or two ago, and they managed to, to fix it. One of the things I think the state could learn, and, and it's a big thing that this, my fishing group works with, is free public access. If you go travel around the Great Lakes, there's a lot of cities and a lot of towns and one of the things you want to do is you want to, people want to get to the water, do every kind of imaginable activities you can think of, fishing, boating, swimming, uh, kayaking, whatever, whatever it is. But the big secret, and the big secret of Prescott, it's free public access. You have seven miles of, of beaches uh, that are open to the public. Of course, not all of it, but it's, it's available for people at least to walk down. You can't swim in all of them because of uh, secure, not security, but safety reasons. But uh, that's the biggest secret. Uh, our lake is our biggest asset. It has been, even though we've shifted out of the industrial phase to some extent. Um, we have a, a, a fishing industry that generates $49 million a year into our economy. And Prescal is a big part of it. Prescal Bay is a big part of it, well, as well as some of the other uh, streams that uh, uh, house steelhead throughout the county. So uh, it's the, the whole idea is the free public access. Uh, we have a lot of organizations uh, like the Sons of Lake Erie, uh, like DCNR, and like the uh, <clears throat> North, the uh, Western Pennsylvania Regional Conservancy. Uh, they all. Uh, acquiring land and making it open to the public. Those are what's going to draw people here. And those are what's going to be our new and growing industry. When, when we uh, asked uh, tourists, people that self-identified as tourists, what was the most surprising thing about Presque Isle? The single most surprising thing was that it was free. And they told us that uh, they rushed home and told all their friends that they found this fabulous place, a paradise, and it was free. Anybody could do whatever, within reason, uh, water activities they wanted there, uh, sailboarding, uh, windsurfing. There are people out there windsurfing in, in the winter, in the crazy uh, winds and waves. It's just, it's free, and no one can believe that. And people said, we would have happily paid, especially if we could have gotten some, some uh, technology for paying annually. And uh, discussing that possibility, uh, which keeps coming up with the park superintendents, they asked the question, how would we collect the money? Uh, it would just tax them beyond, uh, beyond their capabilities to put you know, people out there to collect the money. And uh, on the big days, July the 4th weekend, there would be a, a line of cars from Presque Isle up to I-90 uh, trying to figure out how to get out onto the park. Keep it free, keep it public. Yes, what do the next hundred years look like for Presque Isle? What are your worries, concerns? What are your hopes and dreams for the future? What do you hope Presque Isle will look like in, uh, you know, 2121? My biggest worry is, is erosion. Uh, that's an ongoing battle. It's a continuing battle. 
there's a, a lot of money spent every year to replenish the beach, the sand, the sand on the beaches. Uh, my concern is that uh, uh, other uh, priorities may take the uh, uh, sand replenishment away from our park and may have to go. So that's a, that's one of the big ones. Another thing that I'm concerned about is, is like Dave had said earlier, is becoming overused. Uh, you know, people have a tendency to litter and, and, and damage and just, just by their general activities. So uh, I think if, if they had a, a way that uh, they could go get across the people that, hey, uh, you got to preserve it, you got to protect it, you got to sustain it. Uh, I think it's it's got to be like we said it's a it's a living entity, and uh, those who go on it better take care of it, keep it alive. From my perspective, I'm mostly concerned about climate change. Uh, there's no doubt that it's getting warmer here, and we're losing uh, the winter ice that used to protect the shores of Presque Isle. And the other issue that we have with respect to climate change is we're getting wetter and the, the water levels are gradually rising. So if we look at the years gone by to recorded history, there was about a 30 year water cycle on the lake. It would go up and down every 30 years. And uh, unlike uh, the oceans where you get a, a tide and, and the beaches get used to the daily tide, when the lake level goes up three or four or five feet, which it can do over a 30 year period, that really puts uh, the beaches and the internal parks at risk. So you can go any place on Presque Isle these days and you'll see water in the inland parts. You could take a post hole digger and go down 18 inches and you'd see water in the center of the peninsula. This is not a stable platform and it's, it's at risk if the water level keeps going up. So the high water cycle uh, should have ended three or four years ago and we should be going down now, but we're not. And uh, all the people that are studying that from the perspective of water levels are concerned that uh, if the water level doesn't go down, if it keeps going up and up and up, when we get storm surges, which we do when we have nor'easters, uh, Presque Isle could be at risk that way. And how much longer can we count on getting the bazillions of dollars a year that we get to put sand on the beaches? And how long does the sand stay on the beaches before it washes away? All the more reason for people to, you know, support state parks generally and and, uh, and Presque Isle State Park and Tom Ridge Environmental Center, specifically in this case. And your book uh, does that. Uh, I'm very glad to hear that uh, sales are going very well. And so it may actually be beside the point to tell people where they can get a, get their hands on a copy of this thing if there are any available. But uh, to the extent that there are. How can people get this book and, uh, and and why should they? Well, they can go to the website, accidentalparadise.com. And uh, even if you're in a downstate location like Harrisburg or wherever, you could order one and it will be sent to you. And uh, well, this first printing we know is going to go away really quick. It will be reprinted and neither Jerry nor I are taking uh, royalties. Uh, we're donating our... Uh, large expenses in the production of what we did here uh, to uh, this endeavor. And uh, this is our contribution uh, to the well-being of Presque Isle. Well, thank you for all of your work on this project. It was a fascinating read. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great talking with you, gentlemen. Same here, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Josh. David Frew is Professor Emeritus at Gannon University and former director of the Erie County Historical Society. 
Jerry Skripsack is a historian and president of Sons of Lake Erie Fishing Club. They're both native Erieites, and they are co-authors of Accidental Paradise, a natural, social, and political history of Presque Isle. It's probably a bit too late to get a hold of a copy in time to serve as a Christmas gift, so just get it for yourself. Uh, Accidental Paradise is available for purchase online at the website accidentalparadise.com. Proceeds benefit the Tom Ridge Environmental Center at Presque Isle State Park. Look out for links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. That'll wrap up this show, and that brings this year's run of Pennsylvania Legacies to a close. We'll be back in 2021 with more stories of conservation through cooperation. Until then, you can catch up on past episodes of the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast at peckpa.org. There you'll also find videos and other interactive content, information about PEC's program and policy work across the state. We are big into watershed protection and restoration. We do work on outdoor recreation and trails. We have a robust policy program focused on energy and climate and other matters in the state capitol. We help communities with local economic development with an emphasis on conservation and outdoor recreation. You can find out about all that and more on our website, again, peckpa.org. Thanks for listening to Pennsylvania Legacies today and always. We appreciate your support throughout the year. Thanks for supporting the work that Peck does in all the aforementioned areas. We wish you health and happiness this holiday season and throughout the new year. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. And again, thanks for listening.